where's God in all of this? We live in a world where it feels like sometimes that God is not showing up, where our prayers are left unanswered. Why would God allow this to happen? Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway and the preaching ministry of Pastor Justin Carruthers. My name is Jason McNabb, and we're in our current series in the book of Daniel, where we ask, how can God's people not only survive, but thrive in Babylon? For more information about this series or about our ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. His parents must have told him at an early age about how the people of Israel had been set apart to be a blessing to many nations. They would share with him, Daniel, our people were enslaved in Egypt and they were there for over 400 years, but through mighty acts and divine wonders, through 10 mighty plagues, God brought the most powerful nation in the world down to its knees so that we could be set free. And we left Egypt without shackles and ransacked the whole city as they just gave everything away to us, saying, please leave us, and we went out into the wilderness. And there we went to the Sea of Reeds, and God parted the sea so that we could walk through on dry ground. And our enemies, they came after us. And right as the final soul walked past the Red Sea, just as the Egyptians were about to catch up to us, he engulfed them in the sea, and we saw them no more. And there in that place, God led us by the hand in the wilderness for 40 years until we were ready to take this very land, a land that he said was flowing with milk and with honey, a land of promise, so that from this place we could be a faithful remnant unto God so that all the other surrounding nations could see the hand of God and know that the Lord is God. See, Daniel The Lord gave us a statute and a decree. He said, if you listen to my commands and if you are faithful to everything that I say, then I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to many nations. But when you get to the land of promise, you're gonna be tempted to Goshen, to draw near to God's created things and not to God himself. You're gonna be tempted to give your avodah, your worship over to false things and not to me. See, Daniel, that's why we gave you your name. The Lord is my judge. And I wonder if at this point they would grow quiet. And they would say, Daniel, we have not been walking with God for many generations as a nation. Already the nation of Israel has been seized by the Assyrians. And all that remains is a tiny faithful remnant called Judah. That's us. And I'm worried about our future too because even as a little nation of Judah, we are not being faithful to God. I thought things would be different when King Josiah took the throne and he sought the Lord with all of his heart. He had godly zeal and wisdom. He tried to rebuild the temple. He found the law. He called us to repentance. He threw out the false priests and he brought back Passover for us to celebrate once again all the good things that God had done in Egypt. But I see now that no one man can truly save a nation. Daniel remembers that day like it was yesterday. The day in which everyone was out in the marketplace buying and selling and working. 
and a little child runs up the road. And when he is within ear's reach, he yells out those two words, Hembayim! Hembayim! They are coming. And the people of Judah, they realize that this is no cry of wolf. They drop everything and they make a beeline for home. And in the frantic frenzy, parents are separated from kids, moms screaming out their children's names, people coming out from the field to get back into home, Judean soldiers kissing their loved ones before they go into war. And in a sad, almost cruel irony, the people of Judah are once again enslaved by none other than the Egyptians. All the things that God has professed All the things that God had forewarned has now come true. Judah is now a vassal state to the Egyptians once again. But things only go from bad to worse. Four years later, there is a new up-and-comer, a new nation called Babylon that does not want to play second fiddle to the Egyptians. And they decide that they want one thing, power and control over the entire known world. And everyone in the known world knows that something is about to change and it's not coming through a vote, it's coming through an all-out war. The only question is where and when. And on this day, they pick the land of Carchemish. For those of you who are historians and you like searching history, it happened in 605 BC in the land of Carchemish, which is modern day Turkey, just on the eastern side of the great Euphrates River. There in that city, they go into a hand-to-hand combat war, and it wasn't really much of a war. The Babylons destroyed the Assyrians and the Egyptians. The Assyrians will never be heard of again. And the Egyptians, they will bring and they'll uh, scare them all the way back home. And now the Babylonians are the number one superpower in the world. And from this point on, they go from city to city, town to town, ransacking the cities and declaring, we are the new number one. You fall under our control. And one of those cities is Jerusalem. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open it to Daniel chapter 1. If you don't know where that is, this is the way that I do it. Open it up right at the middle. You're going to find one of two big books, Psalms or Proverbs. And then keep turning to the right, and you're going to find Isaiah and then Jeremiah. You're probably going to miss uh, Lamentations because it's so small. Then you're going to find Ezekiel, and then you'll get to Daniel. While you're looking for that, I want to give you a sense of where we are going over the course of the next 11 weeks as we walk into the series that I've entitled Thriving in Babylon. Our objective in this series, I think, can be summarized in what Daniel says in chapter 12, verse 3. He says this, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. And so the book of Daniel, if we let it, is about how we can be a faithful witness in a harsh, hostile Babylonian world. And as we will soon see, 
The word Babylon, even though Babylon is a particular nation at a particular time in a particular place, it is also a stand-in for any nation, any tribe, any heart that stands in opposition to God. And so because every single one of us has a sin nature, the traitor within, all of us has Babylon in our hearts. You might recall in our Revelation series, we talked about the Red Rider and how the Red Rider's always raging. That's what this is in reference to. Whether it be our own hearts, whether it be people who are in positions of leadership who have turned away from God and don't recognize God's sovereign control, whatever it may be, this is Babylon. And because that is the case, the words of Daniel are just as applicable for us today as they were for the original listeners then. Sometimes Babylon is overtly harsh and cruel. You can think of instances like in uh, Mao's China or Hitler's Germany or Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. But at other times in history, it's far more subtle and subversive. And other times we could be in a very faithful place where the surrounding nations are all turning toward the Lord, but our own hearts are still bent toward destruction. So either way, wherever we find ourselves in, Babylon exists and is at work. And that is the reason why we need this book. And growing up, I would often hear a pastor say something like, you know, open your Bible to such and such a book, and we'd jump into it, and I'd think to myself, like, who are the characters? What's going on? What's the surrounding context? What do we need to know? And how does that apply to my life today? And so what I want to do this morning is to give you the story behind the story, to understand the key characters and the principles at play, and why this book was written in the first place. So that as we walk through this series, we can understand more clearly the intention behind the writing so that we can apply it to our own lives as well. Because as we will soon find out, there are a lot of really phony reasons why we believe this book is written. Very similar to our study on the book of Revelation, which we consider to be apocalyptic literature. I find that Revelation and Daniel are the two books that we abuse the most. But we really need this. We need this book. So here's what I want to do today. I want us to look at the story, why it was written, what we can learn from it, and then we can get to that question, what does it look like for us today? That's where I want us to go. So if you got your Bibles, Daniel chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, talked about that already. It used to be one nation of Israel. They were separated. Israel was no longer following God. They fall into Assyrian captivity. And then there's just Judah. But then Judah falls away too, and they fall under Egyptian captivity. But then Assyria, Egypt, Israel, Judah, all of them together, they get wiped out by the Babylonians. That's what's happening in that time. So this is under the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered, take note of that, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put it on the, in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, 
handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned to them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter into the king's service. So as we can see, not a very good start to a story. There's a little over 800 kilometers between Babylon and the city of Jerusalem. So one of the questions that we have to ask is, how does a nation like that keep its grip on all these other surrounding nations, these vassal states that are subservient to Babylon? How do they do that? Do you know what 800 kilometers is? That's a straight shot from here. If we went northeast, that's Edmonton. If you've ever driven, you know it's like 1,200 kilometers, but it's a straight shot, 800 kilometers to Edmonton. If we go southeast, that's Idaho. That's a far, far way when you don't have high-speed rail, you don't have airplanes, you don't have cars. All you can do is drive, or sorry, not drive, drive with your feet. You can walk or you can go on a horse or a camel. That's it. It is a slow pace. So how do they keep their grip on Jerusalem? Well, they, we see in Scripture that they did it two different ways. We see this in verses two and in verse three. The first thing that they do is they plunder the city, they kill many of the men, but they also take the best and the brightest young people back as slaves. If you're taking notes, take note of 2 Kings 24, 7 to 16. 2 Kings 24, 7 to 16. It will tell us that Babylon takes precisely 10,000 of Judah's best and brightest young people, which sends a message kind of like this. If you get any funny ideas to revolt or to join another nation to try to stand in opposition to us, we're just going to bring 10,000 heads back on spikes or in carts. Babylon has a way of saying no matter how far away you are from us, you are still under our control. You are still under our thumb, and we are the superpower. But then they also do a second thing, which is really interesting. This is super significant to the story. If you treat your Bible like a live textbook, I'd consider underlining in verse 2, articles from the temple of God. And then right next to it, write 1 Kings 7.48. So here's what happened. I shared with you already that Babylon took over many cities, many towns, they wanted to be the superpower of the entire world. And so they did the same thing that they did in Jerusalem and in Egypt and in Assyria and many, many other places. But they did one additional thing when they came to Jerusalem. While every nation must be told and shown with force, we are the new superpower, Babylon has also heard about Israel's God. They've heard the stories of the 10 plagues in Egypt and how Egypt was brought down to its knees through the power of Israel's God. They've heard the story of the parting of the Sea of Reeds and walking through on dry ground. They've heard the stories of how three plus million people were able to not only survive, but thrive in a harsh, barren wilderness. No one's been able to do that, and yet that's where they grew. And they heard the story of when the people of Israel went to Jericho and rather than fighting like an army, they went do 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 with trumpets and the whole city went boom down to the ground and they walked in and they seized it. 
So one thing that we, we hear about all the surrounding nations is they are not afraid of Israel. Israel is small and puny in comparison to other nations, and their military isn't that great, but they are terrified of Israel's God. They are not afraid of Israel, but they are terrified of Israel's God. And so any time in which they think Israel's God is with them, they steer clear. But any time they think to themselves, Israel's God is no longer with Israel, then they get cocky and defiant and they wage war. We actually saw this last week. Let me read this again to you. Exodus 15, 14 to 16. This is when the people of Israel walk through the sea on dry ground. They start to worship and to sing. And they say this, the nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Until your people pass by, Lord. Until the people you brought will pass by. So here's the implication for this particular story. Back then, your power, your influence, your wealth was believed to be dependent upon how strong your God or gods are. So for Babylon to come in and ransack the temple, not just the city, but the temple is to say, your God just got his butt kicked by our gods. He has no control. We are the ones who are in control. Our gods are more powerful than your God. And so what do they do? They go into the temple and they pull everything out, right? The great uh, table that held the bread, the five lampstands on the left and on the right, the bowls, the cups, the plates. They take everything back to, the, to their own temple, kind of like a trophy case, right? So every time they're giving tours, they're like, see all this stuff? See it all? This is Israel's God's stuff. It's in our trophy case because their God was not as powerful as our gods. So that's the message. Both of these things combined, the taking of young people and the taking of uh, Israel's God's possessions is the way that they keep their thumb down on the nation of Judah. As if to say to them, the next time you go to your temple and you pray to your God for, for help, don't do that. Listen, your God lost. Why would you pray to him? Look around. You got defeated. Where's God in this? He didn't help you. He didn't save you. He didn't deliver you. He didn't come through in the clutch. You pray to your God. What has he done? Sound familiar? Have you been there yourself? Have you ever questioned where God is in the midst of the things that you've experienced in your own life? Maybe you can identify with this. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, many different renditions of the same question have been asked, but this is kind of the most official way through Epicurus. He says this, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's impotent, he's not powerful. Is he able but not willing? Then he's actually evil, it's worse. Is he both able and willing? then whence does evil come from? Is he not able and willing? Then why call him God? That's the question that I think many of us still ask of ourselves today. Where's God in all of this? We live in a world 
where it feels like sometimes that God is not showing up, where our prayers are left unanswered. We can turn on social media, we can watch the news, we hear stories of devastations and fires and floods and cancer and war and rumors of war, and we ask ourselves, where's God in this? Why would God allow this to happen? I see it in the most conservative estimates are sharing with us that there are more than 150 million orphans in the world. Where's God in that? Or in the fact that due to modern technology, we can create more food than we've ever been able to before, and yet there are more people hungry today than there were even 10 years ago. Where's God in that? Or the fact that of the 7 billion plus people on the planet, more than 1 billion of them don't have access to clean drinking water. Where's God in that? Or in the fact that sometimes it seems like even the most vile and wicked people get away with their wickedness and they advance and we ask, where's God in that. And maybe, just maybe, you find yourself in in a circumstance where you're looking around at the world and it seems like it's all too evident that our God has lost. Maybe you have a friend who says that's all the proof you need to know that either God is too weak or too insignificant or too unloving or he just doesn't exist in the first place. Either way, he's not a God worth serving. Either way, he's not a God worth giving your life over to. Like Justin, if you need a crutch, you need something like that to believe in a a phony God, go for it. But don't expect me to believe that there is a God who is sovereign over all things when the world's going to hell in a handbasket. I don't need that in my life. Not when I look around and I watch the news and I see everything else that's going on. So, like, if you need that crutch, go for it. But the possessions of God in the temple are with us. He's not doing anything. Have you been there? How do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile the fact that not only do we believe a God who's all-powerful, but we believe he's sovereign and in control of all things? It's almost as though you, like, as a parent, you go to the cookie jar and you see that it's empty. And you're like, someone did something. And then your kid says, don't worry, it was me. I ate the cookies. That doesn't make it better, it makes it worse. And so when we look at God, it's like, yeah, like, you had the control. And you didn't do it. You, you didn't save us. You didn't make sure that it turned out a different way. Why? Why? And if we let it, this book helps give us an answer to that question. If you have your Bible in front of you, turn with me um, to Jeremiah 25, verse 3 to 10. Jeremiah 25, 3 to 10. And here we get to ask, why would God allow something like this to happen? And I want us to see with our own eyes the history and the background of what's going on in this story. It says this, For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until this very day, The word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. And though the Lord has sent all his servants, the prophets to you again and again, you have not listened or paid attention. They said, turn now, each of you, from your evil ways and your evil practices, and you can stay in the land the Lord your God has given you and your ancestors forever and ever. 
Do not follow other gods to serve and worship them. Do not arouse my anger with what your hands have made. Then I will not harm you. But you did not listen to me, declares the Lord. And you have aroused my anger with what your hands have made. And you have brought harm to yourselves. Circle, highlight, underline. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north And my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and everlasting ruin. I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. You have brought harm to yourselves. So Jeremiah tells us whenever we might be tempted to say, where's God in this? Why would God allow something like this to happen? How can this possibly be a part of God's sovereign plan? Why is life still so out of control? Jeremiah says, God has been begging with you, pleading with you, turn back to me. Don't Goshen the land. Don't draw near to the land. Draw near to me. Don't give your avodah, your worship over to false things. Give your avodah to me. Those things cannot satisfy your soul. They never were intended to do that. Turn back to me. And if you don't, there will be a natural breakdown of all of creation because that's not the way that I made it. The same way that we saw with the 10 plagues, there was a natural cause and effect relationship with all the 10 plagues in order, as if to say, when we don't turn to the Lord, there's a natural breakdown of God's created things and our heart. And oftentimes, when evil reaches a precipice, even the innocent get caught up in the backwash. Even the innocent get caught up in the evil. And so God begs with us and he pleads with us, come back to me. There's a manner in which I made you that will bring about human flourishing. But as a loving God, he also says, I've given you a free will and you can choose to go. Like the story of Luke 15, the story of the lost sons, when the father gives his prodigal son the inheritance and there he runs off and he wastes it all to the fear and the dread and the sadness of a loving father. But there he waits for his son to return. In the same way, God says, return to me and I will bring you rest. But we often turn away from him because of our sin nature, the traitor within. So here's the first point in your note sheet, the way that I put it. Why was the book of Daniel written? Well, first to remind us that God is sovereign over all things. He is indeed sovereign over all things. God wasn't surprised by any of this, he says. God wants his readers to know that when catastrophe struck Judah, it was God, not Nebuchadnezzar, it was God who was moving the wheel of history to accomplish his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He is the one who is in control. And the same thing can be true today. The same thing is true today. And because it's true, we see a a second vital reason why Daniel was written. I put it this way, to inspire obedience in the midst of suffering 
by affirming one hope-filled reality, and I've been preaching to you for three years, you probably know the underline already, God wins. God wins. And because God wins, we can be faithful to him even when the things get dark and scary and dreadful. No matter what happens in our life, we can feel helpless, and we often do, helpless, but never hopeless. And I've been sharing with you for three and a half years, if we want to see God use us to be a faithful witness in a broken world, then we have to understand this reality. In our life, in our homes, in our community, in our world, we have to see that God is the hope of the world. That regardless of what may happen in this world, he will bring about all things for his glory and for our good if we let him. And the only thing that's standing in the way is me. In your life, the only thing that's standing in the way is you. But if we have hope, then we can, as Daniel says, shine like the brightness of the heavens and as those who lead many people to righteousness. And I don't have to tell you, I don't think, that the world that we live in is not very different than Babylon. Let's just take a look at what Babylon values and we'll do a compare and a contrast here. Verse four, if you got your Bibles open, it says the king chooses to bring people back with him. He chooses what? Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. So what's the value system of Babylon? Well, youth, right? You have to have great bodies, can't have any physical defects, but you also have to have the head on top. You have to be beautiful. But not only that, you have to have a utility, right? So you have to be funny or smart, or there has to be something about you that we can use and consume for ourselves. And I think to myself, aren't you glad our world today isn't like that? It's the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. Every magazine rack, every social media post, every billboard, every sign, this is what you need to look like. This is what you need to buy. This is what you need to get to get beautiful. This is what you need to have in order to advance your career. All these aspirational things about you. You are the center of the world. And this is what you need in order for the world to be a better place. It's all about you, 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 I, 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 I. That's all it is. And so one of the reasons why Daniel is written is so that we can see this. It is to expose the different values between the kingdom of Babylon, and again, Babylon's just a stand-in for sin nature, right? The desire of our own hearts. It's a different values between the kingdom of Babylon and the kingdom of God. Let's consider the differences. Scripture says this, every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord above. But Babylon says, be your own man, be your own woman. Scripture says, consider others better than yourself. Babylon says, love those who love you only and use everybody. Scripture says, deny yourself in all things and follow me. Babylon says, never deny yourself. Take what you want when you want it. Scripture says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Babylon says, take what you want, when you want, with whom you want, by whatever means you can. Scripture says, store up treasures in heaven. 
And Babylon says, you only live once. Store up treasures on earth while you can. Do you see the difference between these two kingdoms? And things might look different. Absolutely, we are not living in the same King Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. But we do have a sin nature. And in that way, we are exactly, exactly like Babylon. The same thing is true of us. So let's talk a little bit more about Babylon and what it means, what's happening, because I think there's some deeply important symbolism at work here that we have to understand. We have to carry with us as we walk through this series until Advent, but also every day as we walk through life as Christians in understanding what Babylon means and what it doesn't. So yes, these are real people at a real time, at a real place. It's modern day Iraq. That's the location of where this is happening. But at exactly the same time, Babylon is a fill-in for a spiritual significance. Something that happens in all times and places. Let me give you two examples of this. Uh, The first one is, you might recall in our Revelation series that we did a couple months ago, that Christians during that time used the word Babylon as a code for Rome. Babylon um, shows up all the time in the book of Revelation. And we even have uh, the author himself, John, he's using the language of Babylon to describe any nation, any tribe, or any heart that is far from God who does not believe in God, who does not recognize the sovereignty and the control of God. So that's the first one that we see. But also, really interesting, look at your Bibles and look back at Daniel 1 verse 2. It says this, uh, the city of Babylon was in the land, um, some of your translations will say Babylonia, and other ones will say the land of Shinar. What's that? The land of Shinar is the place in Genesis chapter 11 verse 2 in which a bunch of people get together and they say, let's make a name for ourselves. What should we do? Let's build a huge tower, like a stairways to heaven, so that we can be like God. And they built a tower, and the name of the tower was what? Babel? Babel? Babylon. Isn't that interesting? It's the same thing. So in Scripture, from Genesis 11 to Revelation 17 and 18, and many times in between, Babylon is in reference to any human heart that is far from God. And so that is why the book of Daniel is just as relevant, just as applicable for us today as it was for the original listeners. Because we are banging our heads on exactly the same things. And so here's the next point I put in your note sheet. The book of Daniel was written to reveal how every heart seeks to glorify itself and not acknowledge that God is the true king. And that's exactly what we're dealing with today. Babylon is the representation of a world that is wrapped up in sin. Now here's where we need nuance. This is not a violent overthrow today. And I think we need to be very careful to ascribe Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon to what we are dealing with today. We are not in Mao's China. We are not in Hitler's Germany. We are not in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. But by the same token, here's where I want to concede something and say to you, in fact, in some ways, it's much, much worse because it's more subtle and subversive. It is very hard for people to live as exiles in a foreign nation when we love the nation that we're living in. 
And that was the, the command from God. He said, you know what? When you're in the wilderness, you have to put your trust in me. In some ways, it's gonna be really easy for you to put your trust in me. But when you go to the promised land, you're gonna forget about me because of all the amenities that the promised land has to offer. So it's more subtle and subversive. I've shared with you this quote before from C.S. Lewis on Screwtape's uh, letters. I, I love Screwtape letters. And this is where uh, a senior demon named Screwtape is advising his nephew Wormwood on how to lead Christians astray. And he says this, indeed the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And I think that's more what we're dealing with today. That's the Babylon that we're experiencing and struggling to live with. And I think that will become abundantly clear as we walk through this Daniel series. So we live in a world that's constantly bombarding us saying, this is our philosophy, do what we do, eat what we eat, live as we live, how we act, what we do, what we eat, what we drink, be like us. And you know what, if, if you wanna follow your own God on your own time, that's fine, but just live as we live. Don't be weirdos, all right? Don't be strange, just be like us. We are like in a river. We're like salmon traveling up a river. And if you're standing still, you're going back. We have to fight up against the stream, the cultural stream of Babylon, as opposed to the hard, upward-moving stream of the kingdom of God. And that is an increasingly difficult thing to do. So, so here's what this book is all about. And subsequently, what our calling is today. How can the people of God live by faith as exiles in an increasingly secular world. What does it look like to do that? To be faithful in a land not our own. And to recognize that even if we enjoy the nation that we live in or the city we live in or the land we live in, that we are still exiles. Because we long for the day in which God will come and make all things new and he will turn a remnant into the faithful people of God when we are centered around the throne of God giving him worship. Until that day, we are as exiles. See, growing up, I often thought of Daniel as a bit like a moralistic tale, right? If, if we're faithful to God, then he won't let anything bad happen to us. He'll rescue us from the lions and from the fire. But that's not what this book is about. I've often been heard uh, it talked about as like a prophetic book, that one day God will return and he will take us from this train wreck of a world. He'll beam us up into the Christian death star and he will destroy this terrible world and all of its evil and there we will celebrate, yippee! That's not what this book is about either. Instead, it's about something far more beautiful. It is a story of hope in the midst of a hopeless world that contrary to what we might see, God is still sovereign and in control of all things. And the question for us, whether we are in a Mao's China 
situation or a Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon situation or a far more comfortable culture in which we are getting a little too cozy with the culture of Babylon. Either way, the question is, will you be faithful and obedient to my call in the midst of the land in which I have placed you so that others might see the Lord for who he is and profess that Jesus Christ is Lord? Will you be obedient to my call? And in the coming weeks, and as we jump into our life groups and roll up our sleeves and say, what does it look like, practically speaking, to do this in a real-world setting? We get to talk about that. We get to talk about aptitude and wisdom and learning and and how we can apply our faith in a modern-day context, all those kinds of things. But before we get there, we have to see the plain main thing. Here's the last note I want you to take note of this morning on why the book of Daniel was written, to announce the good news of our true savior who will rescue the world that he loves. That's what Daniel's pointing to. So the book of Daniel is not that, as we saw already, King Josiah can return the nation of Judah back to faithfulness. He couldn't do it. It's not that Daniel can do it. It's not that his three friends could do it. It's not that you or I could do it. We can't. We cannot do it. Instead, it is a vision pointing forward for us to see that one day he will return in glory. Every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that his death on the cross is his hope for the world, his defeat over death, but it's also ours. It's also ours that we get to celebrate that hope as Jesus has paid the price for us. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, will we remain faithful? Because Daniel was obedient at the cost of his life. But Jesus was obedient at the expense of his life. Not just the risk, but the full expense. And so we see Jesus for who he is and we worship him and we seek to remain obedient to his call even as exiles in a foreign land. Well, you've been listening to the latest sermon in our current Daniel series, Thriving in Babylon, and to the preaching ministry of our pastor Justin Carruthers. For more information about this teaching series or our church's ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.